0: good to see you tonight. Thanks for coming out to give the Lord first place in your Sunday evening tonight. Let's uh, bow before him. If you're inclined to kneel with me, that would be fine. Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. And how we thank you that the believer who will partake of you in all of your splendor will never be hungry again. Thank you for changing us increment by increment to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And may tonight, with time spent on your word, be another installment of the Spirit of God chipping off of me and my church family everything that doesn't look like Jesus. We pray these things expectantly in his holy name. Amen. Well, we are in a four-part series on Sunday nights called What I Promise You as Your New Pastor. I share this because this is a promise, a group of promises I make to the Lord, but also to you, my brothers and sisters. I share this so you'll know how to pray for me. And I share this to challenge you to think about making such promises to God because you are... Believer ministers wherever you go. Let me review the first eight promises I made last time. Number one, I will shepherd you without duplicity, or in other words, without hypocrisy. Number two, I will guide you with biblical principles that are well interpreted and well applied. Number three, I will work hard. Number four, I will be globally minded. Number five, I will personally and publicly evangelize without embarrassment and without fearing rejection. Number six, I will preach and teach correct doctrine, whether it is popular or not. Number seven, I will carefully monitor my own life and my own beliefs. And Number eight, I will work to multiply myself as Christ is formed in me. Number nine, the first promise for this evening, is I will expect hardships and I will push through them. We're going to move around God's word, so if you have your Bibles, 2 Timothy 1, verse 18. I will expect hardships and I will push through them. 2 Timothy 1, verse Verse 18, remember we said that Second Timothy is the last letter that the Spirit of God moved Paul to write before he was beheaded. He may have only had two weeks between the writing of Second Timothy and his execution. And he said in Second Timothy 1, verse 18, The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Paul, throughout this time in his life, faced persecution and opposition, and he said that he would uh, bless those who helped him through that time, but he would come through that time, and indeed he did. He finished well. I can think of hardships that I've had, and this is now the fourth church I've had the privilege of under-shepherding. I think of the first church, where there was an issue over me being part of an evangelical ministerial. And it became a big, uh, contentious debate that uh, the leadership of that church didn't think I should be part of a ministerial, although the ministers there loved the word and loved the Lord. I think of the second church I pastored in, the fact that a believer, so called believer, not from within the church, came to the church leadership and said he could invest, invest the church's money and have a, a, a favorable return of interest, and he wound up abs- absconding with tens of thousands of dollars from our church. Hardship. In that same church, there was an Iwana leader and an Iwana leader, and they committed adultery together. Hardship. It's part of ministry. I think of another situation where a false teacher who looked like Santa Claus, literally, came into the church I was pastoring and started to promulgate error and lies. Had to be dealt with, hardship. I think of another church ministry where I was verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, preaching through the word, and it was the Song of Solomon, and there were a sizable segment of that local church that found that offensive because they thought the Bible ought not to be taught on a Sunday morning about human marital love and romance and intimacy, although I sought to do that discreetly. Hardship. I will expect hardship here. It's part of the ministry. But I will purpose to push through the the hardship. The 10th province. I will first follow the orders from my commander. So stay in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Pick up a 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active duty entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul was using the metaphor to young Pastor Timothy that you are like a soldier in God's army and you're going to have to endure hardship as a good soldier. And you're going to do this not to please the other soldiers, but to please the one who enlisted you as a soldier. Pastoral ministry has the great temptation. To take the orders from other people, to do what they want, to favor what they favor, to tickle the ears with scriptures that aren't scriptures that are easier to hear than other scriptures that are needful to hear. I promise you, I'll seek to follow orders from my commander that I will try to pastor with an audience of one, the Lord. Number 11. I will not call you to a standard of holiness which I personally skip. Water seeks its own level. And the leader, the servant leader of a church, a senior pastor and his staff, and uh, those that he's mentoring to be leaders, they set the temperature of any local church. And they should never expect for the people of God that they are seeking to lead for Jesus' glory will ever exceed their spiritual temperature. It's incumbent on me and it's incumbent on the other pastors of our church to maintain a healthy high temperature for love for Christ. And I'll seek to never call you all to a standard of holiness that I just don't think applies to me. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, says, "Keep keeping the faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck regarding their faith. These two that knew the truth, that taught the truth, they departed from the truth because they were calling others to holiness that they themselves weren't living. And the scriptures say they were shipwrecked. 2 Timothy 2, 5, on this same point, that I will not call you to a standard of holiness which I personally skip. 2 Timothy 2, verse 5, a new metaphor, that of an athlete. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Woe is me if... I lay down rules from Scripture for you to keep, and I don't bother to keep them. I will not call you to a standard of holiness which I personally skip. 2 Timothy 2, skipping down to verses 21 to 22. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. When it says to the young pastor that he ought to cleanse himself, it doesn't mean, of course, that he can cleanse himself from his own sins and the penalty that they are due him, but it does mean that he can keep his life after salvation clean. And I will seek to do that. I will not call you all to a standard of holiness that I don't seek to keep myself. Number 12. I will lead you by serving you. I will lead you not by lording it over you, but by serving you as I serve Christ. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verses 42 to 45. Mark 10, 42 to 45. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This principle of biblical leadership, that the best and the highest form of biblical leadership for a leader is to serve and not to be served is countercultural. It doesn't work that way in politics. It doesn't work that way in academia. But... The Lord Jesus taught us and modeled for us that the greatest servant of all is the one who serves best. I will seek to serve you so as to lead you. Promise 13. I will strive to be gentle and humble in my times of correcting you. There will be times In love as an under-shepherd, I will need to bring a Bible between you and me, and I will seek to show you that you're off the path that the Bible defines for you. But I promise you that if that is the case, that I will be gentle and I will be humble, knowing that the errors you have made to get off the path, I am prone to making too. Or maybe I have made those errors prior to you coming to me, and I've repented of them. I will strive to be gentle and humble with you in times of correcting you with scripture. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all and able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting you who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. this These scriptures are saying that a bondservant, someone who has committed his or her life completely to Jesus Christ and to his service and will, that kind of a person should never be quarrelsome. But rather, that kind of a bondservant should be kind to all. Able to teach, that is predicated based on knowing the scriptures. If you don't know the scriptures, you are not prone to teach. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wronged. Boy, that's hard. Whether you're a pastor or not, when someone wrongs you, it's real hard to be patient. To come to the point in some cases to say, I'm going to leave vengeance for that with God. And I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And I'm not going to retaliate. And I'm not going to try to vindicate myself. I'm going to let the Lord vindicate me. There was a pastor long ago that mentored my father-in-law, who's been a pastor for over 50 years. And way back then, there was a missionary, supported missionary from the church that this pastor pastored. And she was on the mission field. Way across the world in Asia, there was no email, there was no faxes, there was no telephones. They just did it by letters. And people in the congregation who had it in for their pastor and wanted him no longer to be their pastor, made a false allegation against this pastor saying he had stolen the money that had been raised by God's people in the church to be sent to this missionary. It was false, wasn't true. He was patient. After he made clear that this was not true, he was patient. He left vengeance with the Lord. He didn't try to vindicate himself beyond saying, I did not steal the money. And they defrocked him. They took away his credentials as an ordained minister. They defrocked him, and they fired him. He's innocent. The missionary came back from the field for furlough some years later, And she had heard that the pastor no longer pastored the church. She hadn't heard all the circumstances about being defrocked and fired over a false allegation. But she heard he wasn't the pastor anymore. So she spoke to the leaders of the church that mistreated this pastor and asked if Dr. Ashbrook could be part of the welcome home reception. Can you imagine those snakes thinking about him coming? Would he expose them before her? Well, he didn't. He didn't have to. Because as the woman came in to the room with all of these scoundrel pastors and the one that was falsely accused, she went right to Dr. Ashbrook. She put out her hand and she said, Oh, uh, Dr. Ashbrook, thank you for sending me $550 two years ago. It came just when I needed it. Do you know what those guys did? They didn't apologize. They didn't seek forgiveness. They snuck out the back door of the kitchen. Dr. Ashbrook was a gentle pastor and humble. He didn't vindicate himself. He let God vindicate him, and my, how God vindicated him. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, But kind to all men and able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The next promise, I will work in concert with the other Calvary Bible Church pastors, it's a thrill to me that we have as many pastors as we do and we can work together. There's strength in numbers and in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom, Proverbs says. And I will seek to work in concert with them. I will be a leader among the leaders, but I will work in concert with the other pastors with respect and appreciation. We'll seek to prayerfully come to agreements together. Titus 1 verse 5 deals with this working in concert with other people. Titus 1 verse 5, Paul writes to another young pastor named Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you may set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The implication being, if you don't have a multiplicity of elders, you're not biblically in order as a local church, and that's why I'm so glad that this church has a multiplicity of pastors. That is what the New Testament model says. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you may set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, elders, in every city. Every city was to have more than one elder. To appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I promise that I will work in concert with the other pastors of our church. 15, I will preach the word, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that, reason, result, ambition, that, the man of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I will preach the word of God without apology because it's scripture. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. God moved human authors to write his word with accuracy. The Bible's an amazing book. No man would write it if he could, and no man would write it, would write it if he could. Because the Bible pictures humanity in its true condition. That we are fallen. That we are uh, apt to sin. That we are in need of God's grace. That he can bring us out of failure to victory and glory to his name. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. That's saying God's path is right here. That's teaching. But the Bible's also profitable for reproof. That's saying, hey, you're not on God's path. The Bible is also profitable for correction. It's saying, here's how you get from where you are to God's path. This is the correction to your course. The Bible's profitable for that. And the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. The Bible sets the road out and says, now that you're on the road that God has charted out in his word, this is how you stay on the road. That's why I'll preach the scriptures. They're God-breathed, and they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, let me be more specific. I will preach God's word in a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book manner. Some of these first series I'm preaching with you are more topical, but my normal way to preach the word to you will be if I am in Philippians 1 and get through verse 4, the next Sunday we'll go to Philippians 1 verse 5. Why do I do that? Because I want you to believe that the Bible is inspired literature with a flow of argument or propositional truth. It makes sense. It goes in an order. That'll also help me preach God's truth in context of other verses around that. You know what uh, a verse without context is? It's a pretext. I will preach verse by verse to help you to believe that you can study God's Word in a systematic way and you don't have to cherry-pick verses all over the Old and New Testament to see something. Because when a preacher gives the impression that you have to pick around all these different verses of a comprehensive knowledge of the Bible, then it discourages people who are growing as Bible students. I can never do that. I want you to come away believing you can do that because the very author of the Bible lives inside of you and you can understand the bible so i will preach the word my last promise to cover tonight is i will be accountable to other men proverbs 27 proverbs 27:17 27, no christian is an island No Christian leader is an island and no Christian servant of the Lord in a local church is an island either. Proverbs 27, verse 17, iron sharpens iron and so one man sharpens another. The only way that your knife in the kitchen that's too dull to cut a tomato properly gets restored to usefulness is if it meets a flint either a flint on a power wheel or a flint by hand. But until the dull blade meets a flint, it can't do its true purpose. It can't slice that tomato well. So it is people. Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. And so I promise you that I will be in accountability partnerships with men. And they'll be able to ask me anything they want about my walk with God, and I'll never say, that's none of your business. I want them to ask me the hard questions. And I hope they will give me permission to ask them the hard questions because the only way that a knife is sharpened is if it meets flint. And God says that Christians are flint to each other. The biggest problems that happen for a pastor and the way they fall into sin, the way we fall into sin is they have nobody who asks them the hard questions. They go like this with relationships. Do you know I was at the Promise Keepers pastor's conference in 1996 in Atlanta, Georgia. Huge stadium. I think there was close to 65,000 pastors there. It was unbelievable. And one of the speakers said there was a study done of a hundred pastors who graduated from seminary the same year. Not the same seminaries, but all different seminaries, but they all graduated the same year. Do you know what percent of those men finished? well as pastors without dropping out because of being discouraged or by sin, 4%, four pastors out of 100 wound up retiring strong in the Lord, pure in the Lord, effective in the Lord. And the other 96, some died, some fell into sin, some quit. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. If you find a pastor in the Bahamas or America or Canada or any place else in the world, if he falls into immorality, you could be pretty sure he had nobody asking him the hard questions in his life. He was an island. He was... By design pushing people away and very superficial in how he interacted with other people and he put up the smoke screen of spirituality But under that he had problems That could have been ferreted out as the Spirit of God gave him other men that would have been iron sharpening his iron There's a little phrase that stuck with me that says the three most common failures that will disqualify a pastor from ministry all begin with g gold glory and girls the pastor who becomes a mercenary for financial profit as he serves as a pastor He'll crash and burn eventually. God will see to that. The pastor who wants to rob God of his glory and take credit, that's really God's credit, he will crash and burn. God will see to that. And the pastor who looks at women that are not his wife in a lustful way, in person or on the internet, he will crash and burn. God will see to that. And so I promise you that I will be accountable to other men uh, as I pastor you. What does all this mean? Well, I hope you're not sitting here and going, yeah, Pastor Rob, you ought to make those promises to God and us. Yeah, you really should. I hope that you're not here with some kind of a, satellite dish. And as I'm talking about the standards that God has called me to promise him about, that you just deflect any conviction about those things away from yourself and just say, yeah, that's for you. We pay you. We cheer you on. You know, that's just for you. Because is it not true that every born again believer, pastor or otherwise, should promise not to be a hypocrite? shall promise to use biblical principles in life, shall work hard, shall be globally minded. Shouldn't every Christian say I'll personally share the Christ, I'll evangelize without embarrassment, without fear of rejection? Shouldn't you say that I will teach correct doctrine to my children under my roof, to my grandchildren as I have exposure to them. I will teach correct doctrine in this church in Awana and Sunday school and small mini churches. Should not every Christian say, I will carefully monitor my own life and my own beliefs? Shouldn't every Christian seek to pass the baton from the person that discipled them to the next person they're discipling? Shouldn't every Christian try to multiply him or herself? How about looking at this way? If there's a compass, north, south, East, west. What if you looked at your life as a compass and you have a north point person who's further down the Lord in maturity that you listen and talk to regularly? And what if you had a south point person on your compass who's younger in the faith than you are that you would reach down and love and help? And what if you had an east Person And a West person who may be similar as to where they are in their faith journey and maturing as you, but you would let them sharpen you. Iron sharpens iron, and you would encourage each other on to love and good deeds. Shouldn't every Christian seek to multiply him or herself? And shouldn't every Christian expect hardships? It's only guys on television in America that want you to believe that there's no hardships in the Christian life. You get saved, you get put on a bed of roses, you never have a problem. God blesses you materially and with health and strength and everything's going to be perfect. Really? Jesus was homeless. He only had a few possessions when he was crucified and they took them from him and divided them up and gambled for them and ripped them. Really? Are we not to expect hardships? Every Christian should expect hardships. They're par for the course. We're not home yet. And every Christian with God's strength should push through those hardships. And shouldn't every believer first follow orders from the commander and not listen to the noise, the white noise of people around them who mean well and want to tell you God's word for your, or God's will for your life. Shouldn't you listen only to the Lord and his word? And shouldn't every Christian not call anybody else to a standard of holiness that they themselves are not living? And shouldn't every Christian seek to lead by serving? Shouldn't every Christian approach ministry in the church that I'm not here to be served, I'm not here to be just fed and never give out in the South, in the United States. This would work here too because it's hot here. In the South, in the United States, there's a saying that you can't set out a dish of buttermilk on your porch with cornbread in it, except it really stinks after two days. Some Christians are like cornbread. They just come here, they just want to get from God. They don't want to give themselves to God. They just want the sermon to be interesting and short. They're like cornbread and buttermilk on a hot porch. The Christian life is not just taking in and absorbing and having this grasp on truth as if you monopolize it. The Christian life is receiving from the Lord through his word, by his Holy Spirit, to give to give. Shouldn't every Christian strive to be gentle and humble in times of correction? Shouldn't we understand that when a person needs correction, then we need to love them into correction and we need to tell them that we understand that we could fall where they have fallen and that God's grace can lift them back up in forgiveness and set them on the right track and change them. And they become trophies of God's grace. Shouldn't every believer strive to be gentle and humble when they correct someone else? Shouldn't every believer work in concert with other believers? Iana was amazing. I just sort of got parachuted into Nassau about a couple of weeks before it happened, but it was so amazing. Here are these evangelical churches coming together under the banner of the cross, trying to fulfill the Great Commission to take the gospel to all people groups, to make disciples of all nations. That was beautiful. What would happen if our church just said, we'll have nothing to do with anybody else who isn't exactly like us in our style of ministry? What would happen? I hope you have some truly Christian friends that are not just in this church. The women's Bible study is a great example that there are these women who love Jesus and love his word, and lots of them don't come into our church except for that Bible study. I love that. Believers working in concert with each other under sound doctrine. Shouldn't every believer be wanting to be a a distributor of God's word? Well, maybe not preaching. What about teaching? What about illustrating? What about being an example so as to teach and to reprove and to correct and to train in righteousness? And shouldn't every believer be accountable to other people? (laughs) Shouldn't we welcome people into our lives and say, yeah, I need you? And we're not going to talk about track and field only. We're not going to talk about recipes only. We're not going to talk about even our children or our grandchildren only. We're going to talk about the Lord and what he's doing in our lives and what he needs to do in our lives, what we're trusting him to do in our lives, how we have blown it in the last week. We need to be iron sharpening iron because there's a lot of tomatoes that need to be cut. Pray for me on these things please make these promises to the lord yourselves i appreciate your attention i appreciate you being here tonight i appreciate your desire to be blessed by the word of god i appreciate your desire to be an ambassador for christ in a good way i appreciate it all appreciate your prayers things are going well for our family uh, we're close to being able to sleep at the parsonage, and uh, what a beautiful parsonage it is. Uh, everybody who has set their hands to working on it have been doing it as unto God, and it's real evident. It's beautiful. look forward to sharing it with you. The choir came over on Saturday morning and uh, planted the front beds that had not been planted, created flower beds and put Sheffalera and Palm trees in the front. And there's another variegated, low-growing grass. I forget what it's called, but it's beautiful. Wood chips all over the beds. It just looks professionally done because people did it for God. Some of you are asking about my finger. I don't know what bit me, but I'm going to bite them back. Got <laughs> all swollen up. Uh, went to the clinic on Collins. They were real nice to me, but they had to cut my wedding ring off because my finger was so swollen. it was in danger of, you know, the circulation being cut off. And so now I'm not wearing my wedding ring until it's fixed, but I assure Beth that I'm married in in my heart. (laughs) So just thank you for your love. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your hard work. And, uh, Let's go forward just as real, authentic, genuine, uh, real believers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love in our lives and for your forgiveness and for your uh, empowerment for us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, your character can be reproduced in our lives as the Spirit of God has full sway and control, and we walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Thank you so much that we can uh, have others in our lives that love us and will ask us the hard questions and we will answer honestly. Help us, Lord, if we don't have these people in our lives to invite them to pray about who to invite to be that kind of a friend and then asking him or her to be that kind of a friend. We love you, Lord, because you have first loved us. And we pray in your holy name together in God's church said, amen.